Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Brian Klein and I guess I'm best known now for having directed 28 series of Top Gear, having started back in 2002 in the Clarkson era. And in more recent times, I've become a novelist. And I'm here as well to mention my new book, The Fuhrer's Prophecy, a thriller, uh, which comes out on March the 16th. And it now means that I enjoy two careers. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello there and welcome to the latest Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar and as you have just heard there from the intro, we are being joined this week for the second time by television director Brian Klein. Brian is probably best known and most relevant to us for his work with Jeremy Clarkson, having approached him to start directing videos and DVDs way back in the 1990s that featured Clarkson blowing up caravans, as well as doing the kind of things, as you will hear very shortly in this conversation, the kind of things that he's not able to do on the television. If you are one of our amazing, regular, week-in, week-out listeners, then you will have heard Brian once before, but this is a completely new conversation. This is a catch-up chat because he has, once again, written an amazing book, and we do talk about that book in this podcast but not before catching up on the world of Top Gear the world of blowing up caravans and the world of basically deciding whether or not to continue with Top Gear in its new iteration at the time that Clarkson Hammond and May walked away from the BBC. We didn't actually talk about that in our last interview and we last interviewed Brian 
nearly two years ago as myself and Andy in the previous iteration of the Driven Chat podcast. This time, it's just Brian and myself. And Brian so kindly invited me to his home in London, where the two of us sat down and just had what you're about to hear, an amazing conversation about his career, covering some topics that we didn't cover before, and then, of course, talking about the book. We do actually, in this conversation, cover a lot of things I wasn't expecting to talk about. One of those things being what's happened to the existing series of Top Gear, the one that we should be watching, if you're listening in real times, on our televisions right now on Sunday evenings. It isn't being filmed, everything's been put on pause, and we address what's happened and why in this chat. Now, I will jump in to say a quick goodbye at the end of this episode. This, of course, is just a little pre-ramble before the interview. Uh, I will do so to give you some extra information about where you can find that book, as well as some other bits and pieces worth knowing about, something I like to call parish notes. So do stick around right to the very end, listen out for my little closer and some additional information there. But for now, I'll wind up, we'll let that music lead us into our little jingle, and I'll catch up with you at the very end of this episode for another quick chat. Enjoy. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. As you have just heard there, from the introduction this week, I'm joined for the second time by Brian Klein. Hello, Brian. Hello, John. Thanks for having me back. Well, a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to uh, your little office to, to, to paint the picture of where we are. Currently sat in, in an office surrounded by plaques, framed plaques with uh, DVDs on. This is basically a, a, a cave of your your work, isn't it, to date? It is a bit. Over the years, um, as well as working on Top Gear in 2002 till the present day, I spent 18 years producing and directing Jeremy Clarkson's famous videos that became DVDs, that then became TV specials in over 100 countries, but not in the UK. Ah. Jeremy was always insistent that if somebody had paid to buy it as a DVD, it wouldn't be fair to then see it for free on TV six months later. And right. you can see the logic in that. Yeah. So what would happen is the BBC would then take the programme that was a DVD that was given as a Christmas present and sell it along with Top Gear to hundreds of territories around the world. Well, was Clarkson always quite savvy on that commercial side of things then? or just, I, I get the impression that a lot of people, when it comes to producing or writing or presenting content, they kind of, they'll do the presenting, producing, writing bit and then leave the kind of the, the promo and the business bit to other people. But I get the impression that he's always had a bit of a, he's wanted to at the very least have an understanding of how it all works. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that when I first met him in 1996 um, and he was a presenter on what was the old Top Gear yeah. um, and was no way a household name or a huge star. But he was a presenter who was making a name for himself as being a bit controversial. Mm. He was totally set on that career and the business side wasn't something that interested him. I approached him because in those days, as well as working in television as a director, I was running a production company which specialised in the Christmas... Well, they were videos then, not DVDs. Mm -hmm. The stand-up comedy that people would buy as a present, the Billy okay. Connollys or yep. even, you're probably too young, John. Do you know Mike Reed? Do you remember? Yeah, I do, yeah. I, I, from EastEnders fame? If, if for me, he's Frank Butcher from EastEnders. Yeah, yes, all Frank Butcher, but he, yeah. was a, he was a stand-up comedian. Yes. So I went to Jeremy and sat in his house in Chipping Norton, never met him before, and got a meeting with him and was quite scared, to be honest. Mm. Not again, he wasn't the Jeremy Clarkson we know now, 
but he was still a big, big character. Yeah. And I said, look, I've got this idea called Clarkson Unleashed on Cars. And I've, there is a plaque. Unfortunately, this isn't video. But if you look to your right, John, yeah, good to see it. that was the first one we ever de- did. If you look at the strap line. <laughs> Everything he can't do on TV. Love it. That was the line I hit him with. And I said, why don't we blow up a caravan? Or why don't you pick your worst three cars and come up with the most evil way to destroy them? But equally, let's have some love. And we'll have your top three cars and the three you hate most. And he loved the idea um, of getting, uh, you know, being anarchic. Mm -hmm. And what is incredible and... This is probably even more unbelievable. And I don't think I've ever said this before uh, publicly, but sitting in the room in 1996 was a young man called Andy Woolman. And Jeremy said to me, don't know what you think. This is Andy. He's a good friend of mine. He could be useful to help work on the show, to work for you. Because he's very creative. And that was my first meeting with Andy. (laughs) uh, So 26 years ago. We're still very, very good friends. And so Andy worked for me on the first three videos. I think his credit was either consultant or assistant (laughs) producer, which is ironic now when you think of the empire that Andy's built for himself. Absolutely. Um, So I was able to tap into Jeremy and Andy's dynamic in those early days. Mm. And I'm really proud of the stuff we did. Um, You know, we went to America and we had a helicopter gunship shooting a remote-controlled Corvette in the desert. I mean, things that <laughs> we had the money for and budget for because it was a commercial enterprise. Of course, yeah. And Jeremy picked up on that, that we were able to say, I'd say, well, what would you like to do? And he'd say, well, I'd like to get a helicopter gunship. And I'd say, well, fine, we'll do it. Whereas the TV budgets in those days, mm. pre-Grand Tour, obviously, and pre-Top Gear becoming yeah. what it was, he wasn't able to do that. So then he became more and more aware of bigger budgets. He would want all the money spent not on his advance, not on his fee, and I'm not mm. just saying that. He wanted to make the best programming. Yeah. And then he's one of these people that was so driven, and in, even in more recent years, he'd come and present a script that he's written to a script read through every week for Top Gear or Grand Tour. And if, if it didn't go down well with the team, it didn't matter what time of night it was, He'd go, right, we're all staying here. I'm gonna, I haven't written a good enough script. And he'd go back into his office in uh, Chiswick. And I remember sitting there thinking, you are now the world's greatest successful car journalist presenter, yeah. without question. Yeah. And yet your obsession for perfection is still there. Yes. And you've got the success financially. You've got the acclaim. Uh, Jeremy's not alone in having those qualities because Jamie Oliver which may sound a weird one. By the way, Jamie loves his cars. And yeah, you should have Jamie on if I'd you have I'd love to, yeah. He absolutely loves his cars. But when I first met him 20 years ago, he was working as a sous chef at the Riverhouse Cafe. He was living in a rented flat around the corner. And we were filming a series for America called uh, Oliver's Twist. Mm-hmm. And I made over 100 programmes with him Great. for uh, North America. And I had a Maserati in those days, which had that lovely uh, clock, the sort of clock that looks a bit uh, Dalesh. Yes. You know, yeah. the sort of dripping clock. That's right. And he used to sit there and go, oh, one day, Brian, I want to own a Maserati. And he did. He bought, <laughs> he bought the same car. But 
what was Jamie was the same in that he didn't chase success for fame and fortune. Yeah. He had this obsession about wanting to do the best program he could. Yeah. And that's what I found in this business as I look back, that the people that tend to be very successful are driven by something inside them that you can't quite put your finger on because mm. if you could, everyone would have it. Correct. But then the accolades and the success comes and the people who just want the instant fame, it sounds a cliche and I'm not mm. having a down on anybody else, but it is that incredible work ethic yeah. and dedication to do the best you can with whatever you're doing and then be able to look back at it 20 years later and go, do you know what? Given the restraints of what I was working with, mm. I'm not embarrassed by it. Yeah. I made the best program, the best podcast, the best interview. Yeah. And I think that's a quality that Clarkson has. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I, I haven't yet had the pleasure of meeting Jeremy. Um, he has appeared on our sister productions before and, and he's been in and around the brand, but I personally haven't had an opportunity to meet with him. But I've had an awful lot of conversations with people who have worked with him or still do work with him. And everyone says the same. Everyone says you know, the integrity of him, the, the, the pride that he takes in everything that is produced that is involving him in any way, shape or form is done and then done again and then polished once more. I've spoken to motoring journalist Tom Ford, who is the editor or an editor for uh, Top Gear magazine. And he says, you know, the, the pride that he always saw in Jeremy's writing was just amazing. Uh, same with Richard Porter, who of course uh, was the scriptwriter of the Top Gear, then the Grand Tour and still does bits and pieces for Clarkson now. And they all said exactly the same thing. It's the the amount of pride and time he takes in making sure that anything he's doing, he's responsible for, is brilliant. And like I say, I haven't yet met him. I hope I do someday. It's one of the things that I want to thank him for is that his ability to write, his ability to capture emotion and a scenario in written words, I just think is is admirable absolutely fantastic so yeah it must have been quite a moment for you to sit there and realize and then of course with Wilman who famously went to school with Clarkson and has now as you say gone on to be the executive producer of both the top top gear and then uh, the grand tour when everything moved over it must have been it must have been quite exciting did you did you realize at that point that that the three of you sat together were onto something or potentially onto something quite big Quite the opposite. And oh, really? um, well, I'll tell you, this is a true story again, which when I look back on, it's, I can't believe this. I sort of reacted like this. But in 2001, I'd been working with them both on the uh, videos and every year. Mm -hmm. And by then, Jeremy had left Top Gear. Yes. And Top Gear had actually come off air and was not coming back. Mm. People forget that. It didn't just go with another presenter at that point, it yeah. was off air. Yeah. Um, and Jeremy's got this restaurant, which I think is still his, one of his favourite restaurants, called Asagi in Notting Hill. Mm -hmm. It's an Italian above a pub. And I remember it so well because it did change my life. And it's 2001, so it's 21 years ago. And it changed my whole life mm -hmm. and my destiny. Because the videos were doing well, but I was a director working on programmes like This Is Your Life and entertainment shows... I wasn't working on car shows. I just had a DVD production company and one of its uh, one of its outputs was a car uh, video. Mm. But I also did comedy, as I explained. Uh, people like Davina McCall doing lots of workout DVDs. Anyway, Jeremy said, come and have lunch with Andy. I want to pitch something to you. Yeah. Turn up at this restaurant in uh, Notting Hill and they've got a document and it's called Carmageddon. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the format for the new Top Gear. 
yeah. from the Cold War, uh, the racing driver who didn't have a name, mm-hmm. um, but who never spoke, star in a reasonably priced car, um, and it was a whole format. And he said, we're going to do this completely different. We're going to have a studio. But he said, I don't want it to be a studio. It's going to be an area where people want to hang out. We're going to have news and just talk without VTs. And I said, well, that won't work. Because mm. people, it would be like watching Match of the Day without the football. Yeah. I said, yeah. people are just used to car shows being a film. Absolutely. How can you just talk about cars? It may sound ridiculous. And he said, yeah, but think about at half time on a live football match, they spend 15 minutes talking, analysing. So he said, what we want you to do to begin with is bring your entertainment brain and visual aspects. Find an area where we can make this look incredibly different, Mm. shoot it differently and, you know, be part of the, the gang. And so that's what happened. No one can really remember Andy and I... No one's quite specifically sure when we ended up with the hangar idea. Okay. And it's not like anyone can say, like I could say, often with things I can say, I came up with that idea. Mm. What happened was we needed, Jeremy wanted a regular circuit Mm -hmm. that would become the Top Gear circuit with names for corners and straights. Right. And I think it was, it became, it was just a logical thing one day, wrecking these airfields when you go, well, look. There's hangers here. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, it was more organic than, wow, yeah. anyone had that light bulb moment. But what I tried to do for my small part was to think, let's try and do it and give it some signature moves. Let's use a big crane and a handheld guys to move around cars. And one of the things I'm most proud of, and it's such a small thing, would be every week when he would introduce a stick, he would have a funny line. That's right. Some say. Yeah. And... All those ideas have gone up my mind, but all those phrases, but they were brilliant. Mm. And that would be something that Porter was very good at helping Absolutely, with. Yes. Porter was great at the some scenes. But and they were often topical. Yeah. And but I came up with this idea that on the line, but all we know is he's called the Stig, the cameraman would do a whip pan to a huge banner of the Stig. Mm. Which sounds obvious because it just feels right, but it wasn't obvious until you could have just cut to the, mm. the video. And then the opening of the show, I decided we'd always do a 360-degree move round on the crane and then do... There were certain signatures that the show got mm-hmm. that I think in a tiny way, you know, just how to shoot the news, how to... Everything feels right when it looks right. Mm. But when you're sitting with a blank bit of paper and it hasn't been done... Yeah. Um, I'll just give you one other example of things that happened back in 2002 which um, all contributed I think to the overall picture I remember being in the hangar at Dunsfold <clears throat> I remember the set designer saying it looks terrible it looks shit, Brian I mean you know you, oh, it's so marked up mm. but don't worry we've got uh, tomorrow we've got grey paint going down everywhere to give it a okay. nice yep. and I said don't touch it mm. I don't want it to look like a TV studio F- stop thinking it's got yes. to look I want it to be an area where people just turn up so that on the crane you might see it's a dirty floor, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's a lot of small details like that mm-hmm. that when they're put together as a whole, give a texture to a programme. Of course, yeah. That people take for granted and won't go, well, that was a considered decision. Yeah. The car chairs that they sat in, 
you know. Yes. Again, obvious when it's there, but not obvious. Why not just use normal chat show chairs? So lots and lots of things that all the team worked on together Mm -hmm. to make Top Gear what it became. Absolutely. And gosh, I mean, yeah, it was that, that transitional time from early 2000s all the way through to the, the famous fracas. Um, that was, um, it was the format that everyone loved, wasn't it? I think it was a perfect storm. And again, this is something we've, we've spoken about before, but also other guests that have come on and had involvement in Top Gear. It was almost like a perfect storm of the right people have come together, be that by chance or fate or luck blind luck I guess is is what a lot of people would say with the right mindset of just wanting to make really good content for a car focused audience and it seemed that every single person that was there from Richard Porter as scriptwriter to you as director to Clarkson as presenter and writer to just the researching team everyone that was there was so passionate about making a good show but almost without trying obviously there was huge effort in but essentially what was produced was the result of everyone going, well, this is the kind of thing I'd want to watch, so let's do it like this. And it worked. I'll tell you one other thing that I've learned a lot in television now, having been in it a long time, and worked on a lot of other big shows. Clarkson and Wilman have balls of steel, Mm. and they hold their nerve when they come up with an idea, Mm -hmm. which executives may look at and go oh I wouldn't do that I wouldn't try that it's a bit on the edge and I'm not even talking about I'm not talking about sometimes where they've maybe even overstepped the line or Mm -hmm. deliberately done something it's more integral it's having the belief Mm -hmm. that you're going to make something that people are going to enjoy and it might mean being a bit you know pushing things a bit Mm -hmm. and they both had that mental toughness Mm -hmm. That is very unusual. I've, it's very unusual for me with presenters. Mm. And at the end of the day, Jeremy was a presenter, but of course he was the writer. Yeah. To the point that when, you know, the programme won an Emmy for Best Unscripted <laughs> Show, right. he refused to go and get it. Yes. Because he had crafted it to look unscripted, yeah. but was scripted. Yeah. And his view was, how can people in our industry not be bright enough in America mm. Mm. to realise that so much of this is planned? Of course. But it looks... You yeah. know, top of the head. Yeah. So, very unusual combination of people. Wilman, a genius. Wilman's greatest genius to me, and it is it is his genius, is his ability in the edit. Yeah. And if you look at the farm today, yes, he's he does the edit. He That's doesn't right. do the filming. No, can't be asked, as he would say. <laughs> doesn't interest me. But give him a load of rushes. Yeah. His ability to create a five-act drama story, mm. whether it's a car review, whatever. Yeah. Trust me, people use the term in our business. They, people use edit producers who have paid a lot of money to come into lots of top shows. They don't even work on the show. Mm. They're brought in to say, right, here's two hours of rushes. Yeah. We need this to be a great 40-minute program or whatever. Sure. But what Wilman could do from writing voiceover... Mm-hmm. And he realised, and I learned so much from him. I've spent too much time in the edit with Andy over the years. I mean, hundreds of hours with mm-hmm. him. And his ability to look at something and think, well, we'll turn this on its head and give it this angle. And voiceover can get you out of all sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. Voiceover can get you out of all sorts of problems because, you know, you can come out of the moment for a second and move the story on That's for the viewer. It. 
So you're lucky. We were lucky. I mean, and I'm not playing down my side. I was with Porter. I would consider myself one. I was there from the pilot, three pilots, right the way through, well, from that meeting in the pub. Mm. But the genius was Wilman and Clarkson. And Clarkson being far, far, far more than a presenter. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, and you're you're right. I think um, I'm glad that now, certainly to a more broader audience, those of us that have been interested and fascinated in this world of Top Gear and uh, anyone that has an interest in production has been very much aware of Andy Willman and, and his work. But I think in the past few years, certainly since the birth of Grand Tour on Amazon, Willman's name gets referenced a bit more. He's he's known as Mr. Willman that sends the text messages, that sort of thing. And I think people are, are now finally, the masses are starting to realise that a lot of this genius, as you say, this really, really clever control of the narrative is all done by this man. And it is such a huge task. It's so easy to sit there and go, oh, you know, well, that can't, can't be that hard. I'll edit something together. It, it's not that difficult. But when you have, as you say, you've got five or six different strains of narrative all happening simultaneously, you almost need to divide your brain into six different compartments to remember what's happening there, how it feeds into this. And yeah, watching watching Clarkson's farm now, you, you see it all and you see it unfolding and you think, you know, everybody's watching it going, this is brilliant. But I often wonder, I wonder if people realise why it's so brilliant. You know, the, the amount of time and effort and work that goes into creating what we've all sat and, you know, binge watched six or seven episodes of and gone, oh, that was really good. Can't wait for season three. It's like, yes, but watch it again, you know, pick it apart because it is absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, the yeah. Um, one other thing that I think most people wouldn't realise happens is on Grand Tour, when they do the specials and the same on Top Gear when they used to do the specials, Andy will end up with a transcript that's as big as the Bible. Because mm. you would imagine that for 15 days, they're all talking in their cars nonstop. Oh, God, yeah. You absolutely. have got hours and hours and hours and hours and a transcript, I'm not kidding, as big as the Bible. And I used to go in there and he'd be going through it, looking for odd lines and thinking, well, that's quite, I can use that and yes. do that. And it's such a skill. It's it's an incredible skill. And um, But it takes months and months of editing and of you need budgets. Yeah. And he won't be rushed. Mm. Honestly, I can remember with, I worked on three series of the Grand Tour and we travelled the world. Mm. And I can remember when it comes to the edit, Amazon would say, we Amazon have to do so much work when they get the master mm. because of uh, the versioning, yes, and what they do to it graphically and different languages and of course, so it's yeah. not like say Tokyo where we could literally deliver at seven o'clock and it went out at eight o'clock yeah. and that's what used to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Amazon contractually had these deadlines. I don't know exactly what they were, but they were what they were. Mm. And Andy just would not be if he wasn't happy. He'd say, well, they're going to have to miss the deadline. Wow. You know, and to have, again, that inner nerve to say even to your employer, you know, mm. I can't, you're not going to get it. Yeah. So, again, he, like, um, Andy, like Jeremy, is a perfectionist. Yeah. Um, I've learned so much from them uh, editorially, and I've got so much respect for them. And also, they've become incredibly close dear friends of mine and I spoke to Jeremy two or three days ago and I'm not I haven't worked with him for a little while now mm. um but you know 
he's incredibly loyal to in his friendships mm. supportive and loyal and that's quite rare really yes yeah i think so especially in this industry mm. where everyone or so it would seem a lot of people are looking for that opportunity to boost themselves up the next mm. step of the ladder or to mm. chase that fame you said at the beginning you know the the integrity of somebody that's not doing this for the sake of wanting to be famous they're doing it because they want to produce good content and i think this is something that again is so easily overlooked everyone or a lot of people i should say watch the television or listen to the radio or watch people on youtube and think well they're doing this because they want to be famous it must be some sort of ego chasing project a personal project a quest for them to be as famous as they can be but no there are a handful of people in this world that just want to do it for the love of doing it for the love of creating great content that they love producing and equally they know that others will love watching mm. i think it's fantastic and and again you know thinking back to that the the bible of anecdotes that wilwood would come away from within car footage i mean there must have been times where uh, the, the three of them the trio clarkson hammond and may perhaps had in their head thought oh that was a bloody funny line i hope that gets in and then of course it doesn't did that sort of thing happen often oh yeah come forward and go, hang on where's yeah. my line about the cow or, yeah. all the time really all the time and i've i've seen that even in the new incarnation with paddy and freddie and chris yeah no no they're all all these people they remember what they've said yeah of course and you know because wilman's so clever wilman's cleverness in the edit would be not only would they not necessarily say the line but it almost put a different line in when they had said that because it was better for the story yeah yeah and they go yeah but i i did that at that point <laughs> you know james would go well, i was furious at that point but yeah. you put in that line yeah, yeah so no no there's always i mean andy dealing with the three of them mm. you're never going to keep everybody happy um but jeremy it was always accepted by richard and james and i think this is no secret that when it came to the edit as well wilman would do the edit and then jeremy would get involved towards the polishing end mm. and but the other two didn't because you, one of the reasons would be a jeremy had written a lot of the idea and b you cannot make good television by consensus no and radio, I'm sure, is the same in the edit. And I've learned, the one thing I've learned is a good editor needs good direction. Even, no, I won't say good direction. An editor needs to be told what is wanted. Mm. But if he's got three voices in his ear, all wanting different things, mm -hmm. it's a disaster. Yeah. Um, so that's where, again, the combination of just Jeremy and Wilman worked so well. Perfect, yeah. So we've, we've spoken a lot about the um, Top Gear in the form of Clarkson Hammond and mm. May, of course, that chapter has moved on mm. quite considerably now. They're off doing uh, the Grand Tour and, and the, the now the specials, the travel specials that are happening. In our last conversation, when you came on the podcast back nearly a couple of years ago now, we we spoke a lot about, we kind of skipped a big chapter. We spoke a lot about the Clarkson Hammond and May chapter, then went on to modern day Top Gear, but we didn't really talk about that strange time in between. And I'd be fascinated to learn from your memory of how that unfolded and what level of uncertainty there was about the longevity of Top Gear as a brand, as a production, as something that people all over the world were wanting to watch. So I've now got to cast my memory back and think, so the, the first season back on television after Clarkson, Hammond and May had departed, and crucially, Wilman, it was Chris Evans, wasn't it? Chris Evans. Matt LeBlanc. Matt LeBlanc. And Rory, I think. Rory Reed, and then a few appearances from the late, great Sabine Schmitz as well. Yeah, yeah. So... After the hiatus, which led to Jeremy and then the guys leaving, mm -hmm. um, there was no 
Grand Tour at that point, there was a hiatus period where there were talks about, and I was like anyone else, I read in the press, oh, people are talking to them about a new show and, you know, the streamers and mm. Channel 4, even ITV, Sky. Yeah. But there was nothing. I mean, it was a void. And I was asked by a senior executive at the BBC to um, work on the new series with Chris Evans mm -hmm. um, because Wilman had gone and I was... Well, Al Renton, who... Uh, was the person who then stood up and became the new Wilman. Mm. Al was the only person left. And visually, if you like, I was the only person left on that side. Mm -hmm. So I was asked to work on the new incarnation, even though, though at that point I had no choice. There was no grand tour. Mm. So it wasn't like, what do you want to do, one or the other? Yeah. Um, and I said um, that I didn't feel it was right for me to work on it. Okay. And I explained that, I thought they should bring in a new team, new vision. Mm. And then they asked me to meet with Chris Evans and I'd never met Chris before, ever. Mm. Um, so I did and I had a probably two and a half hour meeting in his dressing room at the one show, just me and him, mm -hmm. uh, to talk about me doing Top Gear. And he wanted me to work on it. Yeah. He wanted somebody who had the continuity. Of course, yeah. And I ended up saying, look, I think... I don't want to be the voice in the meeting room every week saying, oh, we always did it like this. Mm. It should be like that. Yeah. I think you should come at it fresh. So I left. Um, actually, I think you'd have to check this, John. I think I actually, when I say left, I said I wasn't going back even before Wilman, because Wilman stayed for a bit, mm. tidying up the last series that, you know, edits and right. stuff. Yes, yes. And I directed the famous one with the elephant. Big elephant in the room, yeah. Elephant in the room. So that was, I directed that in without an audience. Yeah, that was the very last episode, it? Wasn't was it was dreadful. Yeah. It was one of the worst days of all our life. I mean, I professionally. Yeah. It were, James and Richard didn't want to do it. Mm. They contractually had to at the time. And it was just, yeah, yeah, it was it was awful. So, so basically, because I didn't work on it, I can't give you a first-hand memory, mm. but I think it's now fair to say that it was a failure. Mm. Um, for I could give my own thoughts on why, but I think I think the audience weren't ready to just move on. No, they just weren't. No. So whoever came in, I think it's that classic Alex Ferguson Man United mm. syndrome. Whoever the next manager is is going to fail. Yeah, um, unless you're incredibly lucky. Mm. Um, so there was that obvious problem of the audience not accepting anybody else. Yeah, um, and the lack of chemistry. And I think what people had forgotten was if you look back on YouTube, uh, early episodes of Top Gear seasons one and two, there were no road trips with the three of them. There were right. no, yeah. they were single films, but they came together in the studio. Yeah. Um, but it took time for the chemistry to happen. Mm. And when you then suddenly go, we know this show is all about chemistry. It's the way they act when they go on a road trip or the That's way. Right. Yeah. And you've got three strangers mm. and you put them in three cars and say, talk to each other on the radio and be funny. And yeah. it's quite contrived. Yeah. So what I think people felt that that didn't work. Mm. Um, and then the program is in trouble because the ratings dropped yeah. hugely. Um, I went off and did three years on Grand Tour. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Did you leave Top Gear behind at that point? We yeah. Did exclusively Grand Tour? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, BB, well, it was made, I basically, the BBC wanted me to do Top Gear. I said no. Yeah. But I was freelance. I mean, nobody... Yeah, of course. You know, I was in a position to say, you know, I've done 22 series at that point. Mm. But I was never employed 52 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. I was employed for two seasons a year for whatever many months it was. Yeah. So I thought it was the right thing to do. And then a couple of months later, had lunch with Jeremy and Andy and they told me about... Well, it wasn't called the Grand Tour. There was no name. Yes. But the project with Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I did that for three years and never thought about Top Gear in that it was very clear that I'd broken away from Top Gear mm. and gone with the other side, if you like. Yeah. And Richard Porter, you know, there were certain people and it did become, even with cameramen, yes. it became, you on that show, you can't work on the other. Sure, sure. And it did become very much... There was a divide like that. There's one person who, again, is very important in the story, really, called Joe Orr. And I don't know if you even know who Joe Orr no, is. But if you look at the credits, yeah. from day one of Top Gear, Joe Orr edited the studio edit of Top Gear. Okay. And still does for the current Top Gear. Uh-huh. So he's probably done... In fact, I've done 28 series. He must have done 30, because I didn't do the Evans. Right. He'll have, he's the only person his name will have been on every show since 2002 and yet people don't even think about Joe no so Joe is a genius editor but because he's such a genius Andy wanted him but so did new Top Gear (laughs) and Andy was prepared to say you can do Top Gear okay so because he wanted Joe so much wow and that's still the case so Joe does right now Joe works on the specials the final finishing yep Editing, he's he's what's called an online editor, which means he does the finishings, yes. the polishing, yeah. yeah, and he does all the specials on Top Gear. He does the farm. Oh, You'll wow. see his name on the farm, right? So there are certain people creatively that have gone on this journey, yeah. You know, so bringing that back to me, I'd left Top Gear. I mm. uh, was not going to go back on it. Well, they would not have had me back. They had a new director, a new team, mm-hmm. and then. I got a call from Claire Pisey, who's exec producer on Top Gear, mm-hmm. who I didn't know Claire. And I've really become great friends with her. I think she's great. She rang me up completely out of the blue and said, can we go and have a coffee? Mm-hmm. And we had a coffee and she said, look, we're recasting. We're going to do Freddie. This was before it was on. Yeah. Freddie, Paddy with Chris. And Freddie really really wants you because I'd worked with him for five years on League of Their Own and become really good friends with him so she said if you came in and did the studio side it would give him confidence you know it would help mm. and it was also ironic because I didn't know Paddy at that point never worked with Paddy I didn't know Chris Paddy had a particular cameraman that he loved to work with a huge relationship with this cameraman Phil Petrosky and I had always used Phil Petrosky on Top Gear mm. and then on Grand Tour. But when I left and a new director came in for three years or three series on with Chris Evans, the new director, what happens is they bring in, it's like a football manager. Yeah. They bring in their own camera crews, their own sound crews, their own lighting gotcha. people. Gotcha. So the whole team was changed. And that, that is, but I would do that if I went in. That's what of happens. Course, yeah, you yeah. bring in the people that you know. Yeah. And, um, and she said, well, Paddy would love to work with Phil as well. We'd love to have you back. And, um, you know, how would you feel about it? Mm. 
And so, yeah, I thought about it for a while. And Freddie was really, you know, I was working with Fred at that point mm -hmm. regularly on League of Their Own. So that's when I went back and um, I worked on, I think it's six, I'm not sure, it's five or six seasons now and got to know Paddy and Chris. Mm. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I mean, it's it is fascinating I'm thinking back to you, know, you sharing the anecdote there about when Chris Evans chapter came in and trying to continue that theme of that in car on radio on mic. And again, it could be so easy to forget that Clarkson, Hammond and May, when they started doing it, it was it was like four or five years, wasn't it, before the road trip started happening, before it got to that format that we all fell in love with. So it was always going to be difficult to to pick that up with completely new voices new accents new faces this world of okay i know him because he's been on the radio who's she who's this new guy um and isn't that joey from friends it was kind of like it was very confusing and, and naturally it was going to take a long time for the audience to come to terms with the individual presenters and their personality types and how they are on camera was it easier with freddie yeah and Chris? i think what happened is and and i think the proof is in the pudding You've got really competitive guys that care about wanting to do the show. Yeah. And um, came, at, came at it, I think, from a different standpoint. I think it's very difficult when you've got a movie star. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. Trying to yeah. do a TV show that's unscripted when he's used to doing scripted. Yeah. And as I said, I didn't work with them, so I haven't got specific stories, but I can imagine that would be tricky. Mm. Um, even about where do you stand, where do you move, all things that an actor's used to being told what to do. Mm -hmm. In the world of Top Gear, we as directors or camera crews capture what they do. Mm -hmm. We try to think about, you know, occasionally you'll come up with something quite creative, artistic, like right? you'll stop there and you'll walk to here and the mm -hmm. words will carry you to the car. But generally you want to let them do what they want to do yeah. and capture it. Yeah. And what you don't want to do is, can I do another take? You don't want to be going in ever. Well, we need that again because you then they're faking it. Mm. And honestly, I can say on Top Gear and shows like A League of Their Own, I tend as a director, unless something's a complete screw up, I'd rather fix it in the edit mm. than go, can you try to recreate that moment? Yeah. And oh I think gosh, that yeah. integrity is quite important. Authenticity yeah. for the viewer. Again, no one's going to analyse it. And these people are good enough to do a second take, trust me. Yeah, yeah. And, but... If you can get it naturally. So I think the show, when it came back, 
it was obvious that with Paddy and Fred, you've got these two northerners, mm. you know, very competitive. Chris is the real driver. I mean, Chris okay, has got the credibility yeah. of knowing about cars. Yeah. And Freddie knows about cars, but, you know, he wasn't a car journalist. I, I can remember two years before Freddie did Top Gear, him saying to me, because he knew my background, mm. and I think at the point when we had this conversation, I might have been doing Grand Tour as well as League of Own, and he said, yeah, it's my dream job. Is there, if it, is there any way, if it ever... Really? No, no, 100%. Oh, wow. It was his dream job. He wanted to... He loves cars. Yeah. Um, and he loves driving. So I wasn't surprised when... Well, another thing, I can remember him ringing me up, actually, and saying... I've just remembered this now. I remember him ringing me up and saying, this is top secret, but I've got an audition. I'm going oh, to an wow. airfield. And I'm going to meet another presenter. I'm... You know, what tips can you give me? I'm going to... Because, you know, how shall I do it? Talking to the camera in the car. How often do I look? Mm. What do I... You know, and we had a conversation about that. Um, and I was able to... I said, look, we've done so much car stuff together, really. It was funny on League of Their Own. He'd done NASCAR racing mm-hmm. in Vegas. We'd done... Obviously, he was always driving Jamie Redknapp around in cars as part of the road trip. Yeah. We'd done rally driving. So, you know, I said, Fred, you're natural. You really are a natural at it. So so I think that um, I wasn't surprised that they were able to hit the road running far quicker than the other incarnation. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, I, th- I think Matt LeBlanc was a problem more than Chris in the sense that bringing in a Hollywood star, mm. you know, and then that Hollywood star had to relate to Rory, had to relate, you yeah, know, and yeah. and it's just really hard, I think. Yeah. So I think whatever would have happened initially probably would have failed. Mm. And then I think it's fair to say that had the new incarnation failed, that would have, they'd have had to have had a break. I would have thought so. I mean, I, I like many, was fascinated at that time when the old trio went away, they were clearly going to be working on something else. And the, the rumours, the 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 conversation started up that Top Gear was coming back. There was going to be new presenters, new faces to it. And I, like so many others, including some some very, very close friends of mine that have been on um, the production team from various aspects, from uh, producers coming up with ideas for stories to health and safety teams, a lot of people were kind of sat going, well, the one thing they're going to have to do is completely change that format. In the same way that the Clarkson, Hammond and May 2002 onwards era of Top Gear was so completely different to the previous iteration, which involved presenters like Quentin Wilson and Noel Edmonds. You know, it was a completely different format. And as far as I was concerned, and so many others who were giving their educated guesses as being part of an extended crew to the show, said exactly the same. It has to come back in a completely different format. It can't be a studio in Dunsfold with a Top Gear track, with a Stig. It can't because it won't work. And then it did come back, and it was in a hangar at Dunsfold with the stick, with a live studio audience. And and I, you know, myself and so many others watched it, going, oh, it could have been, it could have been so great with the new aspect of it. Did you share that same yeah. sentiment? That was one of the reasons why I passed on working on it. Yeah, I honestly, and by then I was at a point in my career where you know I was established. I financially was able to say I don't have to work on that particular job. Mm. Whereas when you're younger, you take every job you need to live. And I, you know, I'd been working in television for 30 years by then, Mm. had my own production company. So I was able to take a a decision not just based on what was 
I needed, sure. what was good for the programme. And I thought, I remember an executive, this is, uh, this would be the person who spoke to me about staying on Top Gear, mm. not Claire who had me back. But I remember the executive saying to me, it's great, you know, okay, the boys have gone, but we've still got the stick. Mm. And I said, that's, in my opinion, is the worst thing you've got. Yeah. Because you want, you don't, how can Chris Evans introduce a stick? No. Everybody knows that Clarkson introduces a stick. And it was his creation. And it was, you know, for those who don't know, you know, it was a prefect at Repton School. Yeah. You know, it wasn't stick of the dumb. So it had so much baggage. And instead of trying to change and go completely new, mm. it, it tried to just... I used the analogy to this executive and I said, imagine friends coming off air, biggest show in the world, and they recast five new people with the same theme music, mm. right? Yes. Um, and good. those five people, though, go and do a new show called Buddies. <laughs> what do you think people are going to watch? Yeah. It's not about yeah. the name of the show or yeah. the theme yeah. tune or the thing. And I said, you've got to reinvent it. Mm. And, and of course, they didn't really reinvent it. Um, and that's why I'm so pleased that the new incarnation has and is working People, you know, I mean, people go, oh, Paddy's the Jeremy and mm. he's the this. There are some similarities, but I think they've all got their own personalities. I agree. Yeah, so I think people now don't pine for those days. They enjoy the personalities of Freddie and Paddy. And, of course, with Chris Harris, you have an incredible driver mm. who we never had that on the old Top Gear. Yeah. Not anybody who was a precision driver uh, to the level of Chris Harris. So straight away... That in itself is a new incarnation. Yeah, absolutely right. I think you're right. And I think a lot of people that, again, it's got to that stage, it's got to that point now where we have seen enough of those personalities get together. They are clearly, they do know each other. They haven't been thrown together. And again, I think a lot of people don't realise what you don't see on the screen, what you don't see that's filmed on camera is the opportunity for these guys to be getting to know each other off screen. When you're traveling the world, if you've ever worked in a job where you require it requires a lot of travel, and that could be anything from sharing a car with somebody driving up and down the M1 to flying around the world on planes, spending time with people whilst traveling is the, one of the most intimate ways of getting to know another person, isn't it? So once you've got two or three seasons under your belt, these guys have spent a lot of time together in production suites, a lot of time filming, but crucially, they've spent a lot of time together at the times that are the most dreary, you're always exhausted, it's always a bit stressful, you know, travelling is hard work, and then when you're doing it with other people, you see the best and the worst of your, your colleagues and your friends, don't you, when travelling. So I think that has, it's definitely, that chemistry has definitely built, and I think it is so crucial, again, I other than quick encounters, passing here and there, rubbing shoulders at events, I haven't actually had much of an opportunity to properly meet Chris Harris yet and have a proper conversation with him. But I think his integrity as a motoring journalist, an amazing writer, and as you say, an amazing driver, it really is pulling the three together. To, from where I sit as the motoring journalist-ish person, I sit there and go, well, he's the voice of authority, more so than I could ever do with Clarkson, Hammond or May. If, if Harris is driving a car and he says it's good, then I believe him. And, you know, it used to be that saying, wasn't it? You know, Clarkson could make or break a car. If he got into a car and said it was rubbish, then nobody would go and buy the car. But on what merit, you know, other than he didn't like it for whatever bizarre reason? As you say, he wasn't a fantastic driver. He can pedal a car, but he's not, not on a competitive level like Chris's. 
So I, I think, yeah, this new chapter is is finally coming together. It's finally working. I, I really enjoy watching the three of them because you get a completely different show than we used to have, which is somebody that really can pedal a car, can really talk about why a car is good, can follow that up with a written article that if you then want to go and read that afterwards, you can. And then you've got two entertaining blokes as well that both have an interest in cars. They both have an interest in the adventure. And it makes good TV, which is fantastic, which is really, really good. And of course credit to the direction as well so that's credit to you right a <laughs> little bit <laughs> um it, we, i guess we there might be a few people listening again especially if we're listening in real time i'm aware that with podcasts when they go out there'll be people a big wave of people that listen the first week that it comes out and there'll be many more that'll be listening months down the line years down the line perhaps even decades down the line at the time that we're recording this right now which is march 2023 top gear should be on our screens but at the moment it isn't and i know we have to be relatively delicate and careful of how we say and what we say but there has been an incident hasn't there that has caused the show to come off the air for a bit yeah i think it's um it's public knowledge the show's not being filmed at the moment um there isn't much i can add to what has been written because on a personal level i was in argentina in december when uh, an accident occurred with Freddie. Mm. Um, what I can say is two things. Firstly, my understanding is that filming has been rested until Freddie is up and running and happy to come back, mm-hmm. which hopefully now is not too far off. Yep. Um, but I would say having filmed so many cars over the years and worked on lots of programming with cars, Top Gear prides itself on its health and safety, mm. quite rightly, um, takes it incredibly seriously. And so you have to then realise that if you're filming cars, things can happen. Mm. It's just a fact of life. Just as if you go out, just as if you go out from your own drive, no one can ever say, I'm not going to be in an accident. No. It could be your fault. It could be the fault of another driver. It could be a mechanical fault. Mm-hmm. It could be the conditions. So, you know, there is always that element mm. that can, can come and bite you. But hopefully, um, I think Freddie is going to be, you know, back at it quite soon. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. And I think the, the crucial point, the crucial headline, because again, as you say, a lot of people are aware that it's come off the air. A lot of people are aware that there's been an accident of some sort. But a lot of the the kind of public reaction to it is, well, where's the pictures? Where's the headlines? Where's the stories? Everyone's comparing it perhaps to the big famous crash that Hammond had. Uh but it's not quite comparable, is it? Because Hammond's crash was life-threatening. The crash that has happened or the incident that's happened with Freddie isn't. Um, but quite rightly so. He just wants some time to recover, get himself back on the ground. I think that's right. And as I say, I I don't know the exact details of what happened. But what I do know is that Hammond's crash was life-threatening. Mm. I remember being in the hospital and, and Mindy's wife being told that his chances of survival were 2 out of 10. Wow. About four hours after he'd been taken in. So that was a massive crash. Mm. Um, I don't, from the little I do know, this is nothing like that on that scale. But nevertheless, um, it was an accident Mm. and it's obviously, you know, shaken people up. And Freddie needs time and space, I think, before he comes back. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is fascinating in its own, it it could be an episode in itself. I mean, we have had a previous episode where um, we've spoken to Andy Harris, who's one of the, um, one of the, many people that looks after the companies that does the health and safety for productions like this and again it can be so easy to sit and disregard or even perhaps forget 
that a lot of what happens to make these TV shows is seriously dangerous, isn't it? It can be easy to sit there and go, well, that's fine. You know, that was a cool shot. The car's shot past a camera going the other direction or there's a drone that's flown over. That was really nice. But the reality of it, when you're there, you know, I've, I've seen it from my little tiny world of production that I see. You sit there or you stand there on a shoot and you go, that could have that could have been bad. That could have been nasty. So it's it's not it's not overly surprising to learn that these things do happen, despite the as you say rigorous safety measures that go in. Companies that are employed paid huge sums of money to make sure everybody is as safe as they can be. The reality is that when you're putting on these sort of productions, things can go wrong, and they do. And they do. And um, you know, Scandi Flick is another example of that. You oh, know, absolutely. For, you know, yeah. I mean that. Uh, Again, for anyone that's not yet seen it, I'm sure most people listening to this will have done, but the that is the latest Grand Tour special with Class and Heaven and May travelling around, which of course features a shocking accident in a tunnel with uh, with James May. And uh, I mean we said before we hit the record button on this on this episode, I had I didn't have before pressing play on, on Amazon, I didn't actually have any idea, no knowledge at all that there'd been a crash. So for me to see that firsthand in the on the show and the, and the friends that I was watching it would be both kind of went, oh my God, like how, firstly, how did we not know about this? And secondly, how has it gone to where? But again, it shows that these things do happen. And obviously, thankfully, James is fine. But you know, that was, that was a great demonstration of, oh my God, these guys are doing things without crash helmets in cars that aren't necessarily prepared as racing cars, roll cages and performance brakes, performance tires. This is a car, an everyday car in an everyday environment if you can describe driving through a tunnel as an everyday environment, where things go wrong. Yeah, it's it is a it's a solid wake up call from time to time when you go, well, yeah, this is there's a lot more to this than just putting on a pretty film and getting some cameras out and making some cars look cool. I think, so, although when you do the maths and you look at the hours and hours and hours of filming that are done on these programs mm. and the amount of times accidents happen, you know, it's few and far between, thank God. Yeah. But yeah. as you say, you can never say never. No. No, indeed. So, I guess, I mean, that's a fantastic catch-up on, on the world of Top Gear. But, of course, one of the other main reasons that we're actually here, that I'm actually here to talk to you today, is because, and anyone that's listening to this and will have heard your last conversation with us, uh, at the time, as well as being a very successful television director, uh, I think you've said, you've said it again before we hit record, you've directed more car television programmes than anyone else in the, in the world. I've a shot lot. a lot of material. Yeah. Then the pandemic came along, and a lot of us, um, we didn't have much to do for a, a year or so, did we? So your your escape, as many others found, was writing. You wrote your first book, The Counterfeit Candidate. I still have a copy at home, sat at home. You now have written a second. In fact, I, I know you've written three, haven't you? But there is the second, which is out, The Furious Prophecy. What was the, uh, I guess the reaction to the first book was fantastic and then that's spurred you on to carry on. Is that it or is there more to it than that? The reaction to the first book was mental and bearing in mind I didn't ever expect it to be published and now 18 months on it sold over 75,000 copies Um, and I get emails every day from people saying I loved your book, I read it on holiday. I mean it was a page turner thriller Mm. based on an idea that I'd had for many years and um so the big surprise was a that it got published b people loved it i mm. think there's over five thousand five star reviews on amazon now Correct. it's incredible but i didn't plan to do a second book uh-huh. i was back at work after the pandemic 
and a film company contacted me and said, we would like to buy the rights to turn this into an eight-part TV series. And then a second company contacted me, and suddenly <laughs> this became very serious. Yeah. And I ended up going with Turbine, who uh, bought the rights. But they said, this is going to cost $40, $50 million to make. Wow. We're doing flashbacks to Nazi Germany, the bunker in Berlin, Hitler escaping. Mm. Then we're in Argentina, then we're in America. You know, these are $8 million an hour mm. of drama. And um, Netflix or Amazon or Apple will not spend that amount of money unless they believe there's a sequel, a season two. Wow. Because what if it's a big success and they go, well, that was great. Uh-huh. What do we do now? So they said, before we sign the agreement, will you agree that you will, there will be a second <laughs> book? Just, just pop out another book, yeah, Ryan, if just you go wish. out and pop <laughs> another book. And, and here's the funny thing. Um, I'd left the book open slightly, but not, I had no idea what the second book could be. And I didn't, I said, well, I haven't got an idea. Mm. I've got great characters, some of whom have survived the first book, but I didn't want to write a sequel that you had to read in order. Okay. Um, I remember Lee Child saying to me, but also Frederick Forsyth, who I'd met a few years earlier. Well, go back to Lee Child. He'd written 28 Jack Reacher books. They can be read mm. in any order. Yeah. Because he just, you know, he just wanted it to go that way. Mm -hmm. So motivated by the fact of a TV series, which was a huge motivation and incredibly exciting, Mm -hmm. even though they won't let me anywhere near directing it at all. (laughs) How does Uh, that feel? You are right with that. Ego-wise, I'd love to have a go, but I am quite honest about the fact that it's a completely different genre. Sure. What I will do is I'll be a sponge on the filming every day for four months so that if there is a season two, I think I could say, can I do one episode because there'll be a team. Yeah. Like you often see with these productions, you suddenly see one of the stars is the director. Yes. You know, on House of Cards or whatever it is. But, um, so no, that's cool. But um, I went away on holiday with my wife and said, we've got to come up with an idea. And between us, we came up with a completely new plot for a thriller, a standalone thriller, which involves, and I can, I don't want to do any uh, spoilers, but mm. the headlines would be, the plot involves, um, the headlines would be that the story is set in 2021 with COVID. The world is struggling ah, with COVID. Okay. And that becomes a backdrop to a conspiracy by four of Hitler's direct descendants. Uh-huh. So we discover that Hitler has four grandchildren who are all around the world under different names, living different lives, but they still are believers in the faith of their grandfather. And the reason I've used the title, The Führer's Prophecy, is that when I researched it, I discovered that in 1938, Hitler gave a speech in Berlin, which the Nazis called The Führer's Prophecy, because it was the only time he publicly talked about the extermination of the Jews. Mm-hmm. So whereas everyone knows that they tried to wipe out the Jews, mm. he was never, if you like, on camera or publicly saying it as right. a statement. Gotcha. But in the Führer's Prophecy speech, he talked about the specific annihilation of the Jewish race mm. in front of a million people. Yeah. So for people that are followers of the Nazis, mm. that's that. Furious prophecy became something will it ever be fulfilled wow so in my thriller the four descendants 
of now working out a way to try to bring that to fruition. <laughs> and that involves some sort of attack on Israel, uh-huh. where there are more Jews per square foot than any other yeah. country in the world. But it's not an attack in the way that you would expect it to be an attack. It's not with weaponry. Mm. Um, so basically, it's a thriller that has two timelines. One timeline goes back to the aftermath of the Second World War, where Hitler in my book, is still alive, living in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. Yep. And basically, we start to see the thread of an idea that comes from Mengele, who is one of uh, the Nazis that worked with him, who was a biologist and a doctor, mm-hmm. and was known as the Angel of Death. Yes. And there's a little clue in that as to perhaps where we go with this. And then we fast forward on to a timeline in 2021-2022, where the world is fighting COVID, so people aren't quite no checking illnesses in the way they would normally yeah. because people aren't going to their doctors and that gives a smoke screen for uh, the four protagonists who are Hitler's descendants to try to pull off an attack in Israel wow it's i mean i find this fascinating for so many reasons firstly the the, the creativity of where it all comes from and it must uh, firstly a task to follow on a, a, a successful book they always say, you know, the second album is always the hardest, isn't it? So to then follow on with something, but then to also be... So in your words, you're saying, I could pick that book up having not read the first one, or somebody could... And then it doesn't It doesn't Correct. matter. You're not it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Wow. You, would, you would then probably want to read the first one because of the characters. Of course. Um, the first book is set in 2012 with flashbacks. This is set in 2022. Uh-huh. Um, but it's a bit like... And I'm pleased I'm not comparing myself to Dan Brown in any way, but, mm. you know, The Da Vinci Code wasn't the first book with mm. his main character. You know, there was yes. Angel and Demons, but it became the first book we all read. That's and right. then we read the other books. Yeah. So yeah. I've tried to do this as a standalone thriller. And what I'm thrilled about is so far, I would say, we're currently recording this podcast three or four days before release. That's right, yes. And I've only had allowed about 20 people to read it. One of whom is Jeremy Clarkson, (laughs) who sent me a text two days ago saying, I absolutely loved it, read it in two days, which is great. And um, but the point being, people seem to really enjoy it as as a standalone thriller. Great. And I've learned at this grand old age that suddenly I can um, do a skill that I didn't know I had. Yeah. And and many of the reviews, it's really interesting for me talk about the fact that it's written people can visualize every scene yeah and it was only on the second book i became a bit more self-conscious and realized that every scene i write i have to visualize it of course. so i have to visualize the room we're in mm. i would describe this room a little bit just to give the texture of before mm. the plot plays out of course and that isn't something i did consciously in the first book it yeah. just happened yeah and in the second book, I realised what I was doing, mm. so I've stuck with it. But it is the only way I can make it work for me. Yeah. Theatre of the mind, I think it's known as, isn't is it? Is it? You, well, that's you, a nice... You lay that picture down. For that's a nice say. phrase. And one other thing, the last thing I'd say about it was that what I also realised that the characters, you've got to, once you get a character you like writing for mm. and you believe in them, if you start to write into a cul-de-sac a bit and think, oh, I've gone in the wrong direction, yeah. instead of hitting rewind and going back through chapters and going, okay, I can, 
I start to think, well, how will the character get out of that? Mm. Instead, I, you know, rather than I as the writer yeah. have to get back out. And also trying to surprise the reader with twists and turns all the time. And I remember in this new book, The Fuhrer's Prophecy, writing a chapter which somebody was going to kill somebody. And as a reader, you knew how they were going to do it. Mm. You've been following that part, that story arc. And I knew how they were going to do it. And so did the reader. And it came to the moment. And I actually thought to myself, what if the person they're trying to kill kills them? <laughs> but I hadn't planned that. And I thought, well, no one would see that coming because I, as the writer... Yeah, it's in your imagination. ...hadn't seen yeah. it coming. Yeah. Then I thought, can I allow this character to disappear this early in the book? Uh-huh. Because they're an important character. And I decided on balance I could. Mm. So that particular scene is like people that have read it have all run me up and gone, I can't believe that happened. <laughs> but then I didn't know it was going to happen till yeah. the moment I wrote it and I switched it. You can see where fan fiction comes from, can't you? Because, of course, everyone reading or, or viewing or seeing, indulging in something they've become really interested in, they then start thinking of other other ways that it could have panned out and yeah. other routes it could have gone, which must be quite flattering. Has it changed the way that you, I guess... The way that you watch television must be completely different to the way you watch television before you went in as a director. Has writing now changed the way you read other people's books? Do you enjoy reading other people's books? Yeah, I still enjoy reading other people's books. And I think anybody can write if you're a reader. Yeah. I think if you're not a reader, you can't write. Interesting. Um, I think what I've learned about myself is that for the last 30 years, every time I've gone on holiday, had any downtime, I only read thrillers. Not biographies, not real life stories. Mm-hmm. I only read, you know, Robert Ludlam, Baldacci, Dan Brown, mm. all the Grisham, all thriller writers. And somewhere in my brain, a mechanism has developed mm. of understanding that genre, but I didn't know that I did. And I think by being a reader, um, that was helped me tremendously. So I still enjoy reading and I love reading other books. Um, Love reading thrillers still, mm-hmm. um, but I do, and and I think what I, it helps me now is, I don't question my process. And these books, I've just finished the first draft of a third book, mm-hmm. and then that's the end of this story. There yeah. will be, if I do a fourth book, it will be a completely new characters, new new invention. Right. But they're ninety thousand words, give or take. And I know that when I started The Furious Prophecy, book two, I remember getting about 3,000 words in and thinking, well, how is this going to... I sort of... What, what, what's going to happen, mm. almost? And I don't question my process. I yeah. just find that ideas come to me um, and plots come to me. And I think that's part of it, just almost believing in your own mind mm. and letting it happen. And trying to stay faithful to... I I mix a lot of fact and fiction. Mm -hmm. So what's quite good for me is, if I'm talking about a gun, an assassin's gun, I'll spend half a day researching the best assassin's gun and why it is. So that when the assassin picks up the gun, it's not he's picked up the gun, it's the whatever gun it is. Mm. It's this particular weapon that can shoot at a thousand metres. It can do that. Or whatever the scene is. And that, I find helps give me a little framework to then work within when I then go creatively with what happens. I like to use facts a lot. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. Which I think 
it's so crucial, you know, the audience, an audience that have a vested interest in this sort of story are going to want to know that the author is writing with authority on what, or the, the subject matter, um, as a slightly kind of throwaway comparison. It's a bit like anyone that's got an interest in cars watching a period drama and going, yeah, but they got the car wrong. Yeah. You know, that, the car's too new. Why, why is that there? Um, yeah. It's exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. And one quick uh, example on that. In the first book, The Counterfeit Candidate, on Hitler's 60th birthday, uh, when he's living in Patagonia, a huge party is thrown for him by Eva Braun, his wife, uh-huh. and by Martin Borman, who is his sort of number two. And when I wrote about this party, I'd researched enough about Hitler to know that he was a huge Wagner opera fan. Massive Wagner opera fan. And there was one particular opera that he was mad about. And um, so I built into the storyline that in the party in the grounds of this farmhouse, there was a stage and an opera singer comes Mm -hmm. and sings his favourite part from this opera. And I remembered looking at the dates of when Hitler would have been 60 had he survived. Uh-huh. A young up-and-coming singer at that point who wasn't a huge star but was just starting out to make a name for herself was Maria Callas. Right. So I then researched as much as I could. Was it possible? Was she doing a performance on April the 30th in that year? Because if she was, I couldn't use her. Uh-huh. But no one knows where she was on that day. I mean, she's probably at home. But in my book, I was able to say she was flown into Patagonia ah. to sing. But what I didn't want to happen was someone to Google it and go, well, she was at the opera in London. Yeah, yeah. So I would have found someone else. Yeah. So I'm quite meticulous in the, when you check into things. Yeah. And another quick one like that is that I read the whole book written by Hitler's doctor. He, right. Who lived with him in the bunker yeah and he hitler was on cocaine Mm. um but he did it through eye drops and i'd never ever heard about cocaine being diluted (laughs) and being given to someone through eye drops and that's how hitler took cocaine wow and so i was able that gave me some really good scenes Mm. but again i've had people going i read that i didn't believe it but then i've checked it out yeah yeah, and it was true So it's really important to me to bring interesting... Do you know what? I try to write what I'd like to read. Yes. And nothing more than that. Nothing. It's never going to win a Booker Prize. Sure. People enjoy it. But I do try to go, what would I find an interesting fact? Mm. And if I think it's boring, I take it out. Yeah. But if it's interesting, it might be quite wordy and it might be... like I found it quite interesting what makes one a satin scum better for certain people of course yeah. so for me that became an interesting thing but then you don't want to do five pages on it no. but you might do a paragraph on it rather than yeah. he picked up the gun yeah so i find all that sort of detail quite wow. interesting and that one paragraph is enough to show the educated reader that you know what you're talking about and the uneducated reader or the reader that doesn't care what type of gun it is they don't care anyway so it doesn't matter so i think mm-hmm. that's yeah perfect yeah so, The Fuhrer's Prophecy. At the time you were listening to this, dear listener, it came out just before the weekend. It is available to buy right now. Where can people go to find it? Well, it's everywhere. In fact, um, unlike the first one, which was only on Amazon to begin with, uh-huh. it's in Waterstones and uh, Gaunts and places like that. But also, amazingly, I've just had a thing from the publisher. It's in 400 Asda stores ah. and in Tesco stores, and which I didn't even know they sold books, <laughs> but the big mega stores do. Oh, fantastic. And I've just been sent a list of 400 Asdas where it's going to be on sale. So, um, But the final thing, there was a similarity between, I think, my view on directing and writing, mm. and it, I've learnt this, 
is that you have to know when to let go. Mm. So when you're editing a film, you could go on forever. Mm. Forever. Well, let's try this. Let's try this music track. Let's take a bit there. So you've got to be a bit pragmatic at some point and go, I think I've made a great film. I've tried my hardest. Mm. And maybe if I had another six months, I could make it even better. Sure. But I want to get the moment of it out there for people to enjoy. Yeah. And with writing, it's the same because I'm now starting the process on my third book. And what happens is I do a first draft and I end up with about the first two books have probably been six drafts. Mm. And the changes as you go on to the third and fourth become smaller and smaller, but they're important, you know, but then you've got to know when to say, that's it. Yeah. I'm happy with it. Even though you probably a year later will look back and go, I could have done that. Yeah. You've got to know when to let go. Mm. Fascinating. Well, I can't wait to see what happens next. I can't wait also to see the televised adaptation. Yeah, I mean, that is so exciting. So exciting. Really, really, really big. I feel like, yeah, this is potentially the, the start of a, pardon the pun, a new chapter for your career, you know, alongside the amazing television work you're doing as a director. But also, I have a feeling we're going to see the name Brian Klein written on a lot more front covers of books for many years to come. I hope so. Thank you, John. Yeah, pleasure. Um, thank you so much. This has been great. Great to catch up with you. And um, no doubt, hopefully, we'll bump into you again. When that third book comes along, I'll come back again. We'll record another one. Look forward to it. Cheers. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Well, there we are. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Thank you. If you want to find out where you can purchase that book, Brian did mention it in our conversation that there are some shops you can go into. But if you want to find a quick and easy link where you can just click through and buy it, have a look in the bio of this conversation. Just scroll down wherever you're listening. If there is a bit of text to accompany this in the form of show notes, you will see there is a link to carry through probably to Amazon where you can click through and physically buy that book. So do go and buy it. And if you do and you read it and you enjoy it, please let Brian know. You can find Brian on Twitter. I'll include his link to to, uh, his Twitter account below plus his Instagram account. So do let him know because what better compliment could there be than knowing that somebody's listened to the conversation, then bought the book and then enjoyed it. So do go and enjoy that book. Find the link below and have a read. If this is your first time listening to an episode, welcome. You have nearly 150 episodes to catch up on now uh, with previous iterations of the podcast, but week in, week out, almost every single week. In fact, thanks to a couple of bonus episodes, we've actually recorded slightly more than one episode per week since the summer of 2020. So loads for you to catch up on. Have a look through the back catalogue. There is no doubt going to be one or two names that will jump out to you as more conversations that you might want to listen to. And perhaps unwittingly, well, completely unwittingly, I should say, we do seem to have a bit of a behind-the-scenes Top Gear theme. We've spoken to some amazing people who've been as crucial as Brian in the world of Top Gear. Not only have we spoken to Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, James May, we've also spoken to the legend that is Andy Willman, who, of course, we talked about in this episode, plus Richard Porter, who, of course, is the scriptwriter, and various other people, like Andy Harris, who is the health and safety person I referenced to as somebody I know on the production team. Uh, He has been an integral part of the world of Top Gear. So have a look back in the back catalogue. Chances are, if you enjoyed this conversation, there will be 
at least three other conversations that you will really really enjoy i will say once more a huge thank you to everybody that has recently left us positive reviews on apple Podcasts. that really does mean the world to us it does make a massive difference a five-star rating and some nice words just does great things for us firstly because of course i can look through them and go ah people are enjoying it that's fantastic but also it means that we do get bumped up the rankings slightly in the podcast charts which of course means that more people will find us which of course means that more people will listen to us which of course means we make a bit more money in advertising and the more money we make in advertising the more fun that we can have the more conversations we can have it just enables us to do bigger and better things and it's you dear listener that makes that happen which is really really kind i've also noticed a fairly new addition if you are a spotify listener you now have the ability to leave comments on episodes and I get to read them, which is really nice. So I have seen some recent comments from recent episodes that have been really nice, just praising the conversations. So the conversations I've had with Emma Walsh, uh, with Grant Williams, who, of course, famously is known as the man that power slides his Jaguar Mark One around Goodwood at the Revival. We've had some really nice comments on those. So a huge thank you to anyone that's taken the time to do that as well. It is, uh, it's just genuinely lovely reading through and seeing what people have to say. As I say, if this is your first time with us, welcome do have a look through at the back catalogue, do have a scroll through. And if you think that this conversation and any of the other episodes you find might be the kind of thing that somebody else will enjoy listening to, why not fire them a link? Uh, a final few other points. Don't forget, this podcast is just one of the media mediums that we create. We also have our YouTube channel, where there you can see lots of lovely videos featuring me driving around in very lovely cars. We recently uploaded a video with the Bentley Bentayga EWB that's just clocked 10,000 views after just 10 days. So that's an amazing amount of people watching. Go and have a look. Give that a watch. There's loads more there that you'll see if you like car content, which I'm guessing, listening to this podcast, you probably do. Then there's lots for you to see. Just search for Driven Chat on YouTube and you'll find the channel there. Hit that subscribe button and enjoy. And of course, there is written articles for you to enjoy as well at drivenchat.com. And of course, the social media feeds. Simply search Driven Chat wherever you enjoy social media, be that Twitter, be that Instagram, be that Facebook. And you'll see all of the updates of what we're doing there each and every day. Thank you so much for listening. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat Podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven Podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.